you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. You will recall that last week uh, we considered this meal that Jesus was enjoying with his disciples. And in one sense, this was the Last Supper, the last Passover supper that Jesus would have with his disciples. But in another sense, this was the first supper. This was the first Lord's Supper. Jesus was instituting a meal that his Christian church would continue to celebrate for their nourishment and edification during this time uh, between the two Advents, this time in which Christ is bodily away from us. And the passage before us continues in this scene. Jesus and his disciples are still seated at this meal, and we are let in uh, to some of their dinner conversation. So Luke chapter 22, verses uh, 24 through 30. Hear now, the law, uh, hear now the word of our God. <clears throat> a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. <clears throat> Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. <coughs> For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, imagine that you and your extended family are planning on celebrating uh, an upcoming holiday, let's say it's Thanksgiving, together over a shared meal. And you all agreed to pitch in and help prepare this great, this great feast, this great banquet. Your desire is that this meal would help bring your family together and build upon the relationships that you already share by blood. Well, the day of this holiday arrives. Everyone is seated at the table. The meal is served and a contentious debate breaks open about an emotional issue. Voices are raised, blood is boiling, individuals angrily get up from the table in hot protest, and this meal, which was supposed to bring about unity, has brought about disunity and division and conflict. Something similar is going on here in this passage. As you remember, Jesus has is sharing this meal with his disciples. And this meal is meant to be a meal of unity. Paul tells us this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says that this meal, this Lord's Supper, is a communion with the body of Christ. 
not just the body of Christ in heaven, but the body of Christ here on earth. It's meant to be a means of fostering unity among the church. The disciples are turning this meal of unity into a meal of disunity. A dispute arises over which of them is the greatest. And we see that this, this temptation to turn this meal of unity into a meal of disunity wasn't a temptation that only plagued the disciples. The Corinthian church struggled with the very same issue. You read 1 Corinthians 11, and a very similar thing is taking place there. In fact, this is a temptation that every congregation faces because division and conflict are aspects that result from our sinful nature and thus are present in, in every congregation and thus something that we all have to be aware of. What I'd like us to do this morning is to consider Jesus' rebuke of, of these disciples, his instruction to his disciples, and he points out particularly two errors that the disciples are making in their view and practice of the Lord's Supper. So I'd like us to consider these two errors, and in so doing, we, Lord willing, will be instructed upon the nature and purpose of this meal that the Lord has given us during this time between his two advents. Well, the first error that we hear about here in, in Luke chapter 22 is the disciples' pride. So error number one is the disciples' pride. The pride that they're bringing to this table. If you look with me in your Bibles at verse 24, we read, And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus and his disciples are seated at this meal, which was purposed to be a meal of unity, and a contentious debate and argument breaks out over which of the disciples is the greatest. And what is causing this argument? What is causing this dispute? Well, it'll be helpful for us to consider the context, the context of this meal. Many commentators believe that in this upper room, the tables likely would have been set up in a horseshoe. And Jesus would have been seated at the head of these tables. And the disciples likely believed that the seats closest to Jesus were the most honorable seats. I would imagine that part of this argument consisted of an argument over the seating arrangement. Who gets the most honorable seats? Who is the greatest among the disciples? But what really is causing this, this argument? Well, it's, it's the pride in their hearts. It's the seed of pride which is sprouting and budding into this fruit of division and conflict. Now, C.S. Lewis very helpfully defines what pride is, and he speaks about how pride is not so much the desiring of something. Rather, it's the, des it's the desire to have more than, of that thing than the next person. So here he's distinguishing between lust and pride. So when you think about lust broadly conceived, lust is that inordinate desire for something, and lust just wants the possession of that thing. 
Pride doesn't really care about possessing that thing. All pride cares about is having more of that thing than the next person. So in this context, disciples' lust for honor would look like them just wanting honor. But the disciples' pride over honor would be them not just wanting honor, but them wanting more honor than those in their circle of influence. So in this sense, pride is inherently competitive. And the reason why Lewis says that pride is the worst of all vices is because it is inherently uh, divisive. People can enjoy some fellowship around other vices, but with pride, it naturally divides because we're comparing ourselves to one another and we want to be on top. So you can see that it's the seed of pride that's sprouting and, and bringing forth this fruit of division and strife and conflict as the disciples are seated at this meal. Now, Jesus addresses this issue in verses 25 through 27. So if you look with me at verses 25 through 27, Jesus says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Remember that it is these men who are going to take over the baton of Jesus' mission and care for the flock and church of God while Jesus ascends to his throne at the right hand of God. And he's warning his disciples to not care for the church as the kings of the Gentiles care for the church. Don't let this office get to your head. Don't rule over them as these secular kings rule over the common people. He's particularly pointing to his own example. Jesus perfectly displays this heart of servitude not only during his, his ministry with the disciples, but especially at this meal. Notice what Jesus says here, that last phrase. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. I am your master. I am your leader. I am the God man, but yet I am the one who's serving you. <laughs> Blumbling uh, disciples, ignorant, foolish those who will betray him in just a few moments. I am the one who serves you. Jesus is giving them a living example of the type of leadership that they are called to exercise once they themselves get in the saddle, as we see in the book of Acts. Now, how does this relate to pride? Well, well think about what Jesus is doing here. Jesus in this meal is serving his disciples, which tells us, instructs us, that when we partake of this meal, this Lord's Supper, this meal is a meal in which God in Christ serves us. It's a meal in which God in Christ feeds and nourishes your soul. It's a meal in which God in Christ desires to assure you all the more that you really do belong to the risen Christ. I mean, think about that. We are rebellious, sinful creatures. We can't even begin to fathom how 
far short we fall from God's standard in our lives, even as regenerate Christians, but yet God still cares about feeding us spiritually, assuring our weak and frail consciences that we really are citizens of the age to come. And so when we partake of this meal and we recognize that this is not our service to God, you think of a funeral service, when you attend a funeral service or a memorial service, you are in some sense honoring and serving the family and the memory of that person. Not so with the supper. This is not something that we do in order to serve God. This is something in which God desires to serve us. And so when we partake of these elements and recognize that God is condescending to us, God is serving us, God cares about our souls and our assurance, if God is willing to do that, if he's willing to serve us in this meal, how can we not serve and love our fellow brother and sister in the Lord? Partaking this meal is meant to be a rebuke to our pride. If Christ is willing to serve us, can we not uh, serve our, our fellow brother and sister in the Lord? In our tradition, I don't know if you've ever uh, thought about it, but why, why do our elders serve the elements? Why don't we just have a self-serve open buffet when it comes to the Lord's Supper? Well, there are many reasons for that, but a couple reasons are, is every time you receive from the hand of your elder this bread and this wine, it's a reminder of your elder's job description. Your elder's job description is not to lord things over you, but to serve you in a way that reflects the heart of Christ for his people. <laughs> Furthermore, every time you receive these elements from the hand of your elder, that is a testimony that just as you receive these elements from your under-shepherds, so too, in a much greater way, your chief shepherd is serving and assuring you in this meal. So if your under-shepherds are serving you, that's an indicator that your chief shepherd is serving you in this meal. As a brief aside, last, yesterday we had our new members meeting, and so this has sort of been on my mind lately. What we see here is sort of indicative of, of one of the great benefits of, of church membership. Church membership is a great benefit to Christians in this age as a pilgrim people because Jesus is saying here that elders, pastors are called to serve the flock. Not just on Sundays when we have communion, but in all of life. Hebrews 13 tells us that elders are called before God to watch over the souls of their people. Not to watch over the soul of every Christian on this earth, but those who have submitted themselves to their leadership. They have made vows before God to care for their souls. And that's what Jesus is telling his, uh, his disciples here. You better take this very seriously. And how wonderful it is to have under-shepherds watching over us in this age. One of the benefits, uh, particularly and more specifically, of, of being a member of a URC congregation is that you receive a, an annual family visit where you have intentional time and space uh, to be intentionally encouraged and built up in the Lord by your elders and an opportunity for you to share any concerns that you have with your elders regarding the church or even just in your personal life, trials and tribulations that you want your, your elders and pastor to be praying for. Now, of course, this isn't the full extent of one of the shepherding ministry, but it's at least one time over the year where you have an intentional meeting where you can be encouraged and share your concerns with your under-shepherds. 
Well, I'd like to press into this, this concept a little bit more about how Christ in this meal feeds and nourishes us. So if you look with me at verse 29, verse 29, Jesus continues, he says, uh, he, he speaks about how his disciples have stayed with them in their trials. And he says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Now, this word that Jesus uses for a sign, it's the word for covenant in, in the Greek language. And so one way you could render this phrase is Jesus saying, the Father covenanted to me a kingdom, and I covenant to you a kingdom. Now, what's being spoken of here? When did the Father covenant to the Son a kingdom? Well, before an eternity passed, before the foundation of the world, we have these references in Scripture that God the Father and God the Son made this pact, this agreement, this covenant, you could say, whereby the Father promised to give to the Son a bride, promised to give to the Son a kingdom, promised to give to the Son a throne, and the Son agreed to take on human flesh and live, suffer, and die. There's this agreement. The Father covenanted to the Son a kingdom. And because God the Father and God the Son made that irrevocable commitment before the foundation of the world, the Son can covenant to you an irrevocable kingdom. A kingdom which includes you being seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb on the last day, eating and drinking with Christ himself. A kingdom that includes you sitting upon thrones, reigning with Christ over the new creation. This is at the heart of what we refer to as the covenant of grace. This, this promise that the Son has covenanted to his people a kingdom. That's the heart of God's covenant, covenant of grace that he establishes in Genesis chapter 3.15 mentioned last week, you can think of Genesis 3.15 as a thesis statement for the rest of Scripture. And the rest of the promises and the covenants that God makes with his people is advancing that thesis statement. At the heart of this covenant of grace is this promise that the Son has covenanted to us a kingdom, not just his disciples, but the Christian church. And throughout Scripture, we see that God continually renews this covenant with his people. Proclaims again these promises that he's made with his people. And after he renews this covenant with his people, he shares a meal, a communal celebratory meal with his people, celebrating the communion that God has with his redeemed people. We see this taking place throughout the Old Testament. The renewal of God's covenantal promises uh, uh, subsequently include a meal, a communal celebratory meal. And thus, when we gather on Sundays, God is renewing his covenantal promises with us. He's renewing, reminding us that because the Father made a covenant with the Son, the Son can, can covenant to you and to me a kingdom, an irrevocable kingdom. And this meal of bread and wine is this covenant renewal meal, a celebratory meal, celebrating the fact that God desires to commune with his sinful people. And so, this first error that the disciples are committing is pride. And the, the greatest antidote to this pride when we come to the table of the Lord is to recognize the nature and purpose of this meal. This meal is a meal in which God in Christ serves you. This is a covenant renewal meal. And if that is the case, can we not serve and love and forgive our fellow brother and sister in the Lord? 
So that's error number one. Well, error number two, error number two, the second error that the disciples are guilty of is that they're treating this holy meal as a common meal. Holy meal as a common meal. They're treating this, uh, the Lord's Supper, this holy meal as a common meal. Now, throughout Scripture, we see this distinction between that which is holy and that which is common, that which is uh, sacred and that which is secular. Now, that which is secular or common is not necessarily bad. All that it means is that it's not holy. It's not distinct. It's not separate. It's not other. God is not enjoined to it theological and divine significance. And so we engage in many common meals throughout our week, but we only engage in one holy meal. And that holy meal is the Lord's Supper. There's only one meal in your week that feeds and nourishes your soul unto everlasting life, and that's this meal. It's categorically different than lunch on a Tuesday afternoon. We make these, this distinction between various meals even within our common meals. I mean, think about, say you're, you're running behind on a weekday morning, and uh, you have to leave the house in two minutes. You haven't eaten breakfast, and so you might grab a granola bar. You might try to scarf down a piece of toast or a bowl of cereal. You don't even sit down. You eat in about 30 seconds. Now, let's say you go out to eat um, at a very fine restaurant. You're going to eat and conduct yourself very differently in that fine restaurant than when you do when you have to be out the door in two minutes, you have to grab a piece of toast. You're not going to go to that fine restaurant and stand up and eat your, minute, your food in two minutes and leave. We make this distinction. And so here we're called to make the distinction, not just between common meals, but between common meals and this one holy meal that we are partaking of. And the disciples are mixing these things. They're treating this holy meal as if it's just an average common banquet, feast, meal. Now, I've mentioned this before, but in a typical banquet in, in the secular context of the first century, these meals were indicative of, of your place in the social hierarchy. And so if you were invited to a banquet, you would be given a seat at this banquet, and that was indicative of where you ranked in this social hierarchy. And so accepting invitations to banquets and slowly moving up in, in the seats of, of, this, of, of these meals was the means by which you gained upward mobility in, in, in society. And it seems as if the disciples are viewing this meal along the lines of a just common Greco-Roman feast. What are they arguing about? They're arguing about their seat at this table. It's all about honor. It's all about increasing their honor and their status amongst one another. They're treating this as if it was just a, a normal Tuesday evening meal. They're treating it as a common meal. And this seems to be the issue that, that was plaguing the uh, Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11. There's much uh, archaeological evidence that has been uncovered about villas in Corinth, in the ancient city of Corinth. And so we can scholars can pretty much reconstruct what a villa would have looked like in the city of Corinth. And these villas would have included a dining room and then an outer atrium. And so if, if someone in Corinth was holding a, uh, you know, a banquet, a feast, in, on a Wednesday evening, um, you know, just in the pagan society, the wealthy, the esteemed, the honorable of society, those who were on the higher rungs of that social hierarchy, they would be seated in the dining room. They would have the best food. They would have the best drink. They would have the best service. Those who were on the lowest rungs of that hierarchy, the poor, they would be out in the atrium and get the scraps of the table. And many commentators believe this is what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11. They're coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper, which likely would have been in a home church, in a villa, 
And the wealthy members of the congregation get a seat in the dining room. And those who don't have much honor, much prestige, those who are poor, are exiled to the atrium. Paul says some get drunk and some leave hungry. What? Don't you have, don't you have homes to eat in? Paul is saying you're treating this holy meal as a common meal. There's no difference between this Lord's Supper participation on Sundays and a Wednesday feast among the pagans. There's no difference. You're bringing the divisions of the world into the church. That's what the disciples are doing here. They're arguing about honor. It's not the place for this meal. Do that on a Thursday night. Don't bring that into this holy meal. So they're treating this holy meal as if it's a common meal. And we know intuitively that meals bring people together around a shared identity. That's the purpose of meals. They bring people together around a shared identity. And at the Lord's Supper, this holy meal does not unite us around a common or you could say secular identity. Meaning this meal doesn't unite a people around a shared socioeconomic status or a shared political identity or cultural identity or national identity. We have meals for those things. You can go to the local fundraising meal for the local political party. You can go to uh, the fundraising meal for the local Christian school or the homeschooling co-op or the HOA neighborhood gathering for a neighborhood in a certain socioeconomic uh, status, right? You have meals for that Monday through Saturday, but this is a categorically different meal. We're not uniting around these cultural identities. We're uniting around our holy identity. And what's our holy identity? That we belong body and soul, life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's that we are fellow citizens, not of this country, but we're fellow citizens of the age to come. That's what brings us together at this meal, and that's the bond that Christ wants us to strengthen at this meal. I remember one of my professors sharing a story in class about one of his, his friends and colleagues in the ministry, and this was decades ago, and this, this friend of my professor's, he was a pastor, and one Sunday morning he was finishing up some last things in his office 10 to 15 minutes before the service, and uh, looked out the window, and he sees two of his deacons in a heated argument, and it looks like it might get physical. We can't have this. He calls on his elder, you know, go out there, see, break that up. We can't be having this 10 minutes before the service. And the elder goes out there, and they were, they were in some debate over a cultural political issue. Service starts. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper that Sunday. And I think that particular congregation, they would uh, gather around in a circle and, and hold hands and partake of the elements. And he looked over, the minister, this is the minister speaking, he looked over and saw these two deacons, hand in hand, partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And my professor shared this story as an illustration to illuminate the point that Jesus is making here. Outside the church, when it comes to our cultural identities, we will have difference. In fact, we might have some very profound differences on some of these issues. But when we come together on Sundays, as the redeemed people of God, we come together around this holy identity of those who belong body and soul, life and death to Jesus Christ, as those who are citizens of heaven. That's what this community is all about. That's what this meal is all about. And that's what Jesus is rebuking his disciples about. And so, Congregation of Christ, how how do we prevent turning this meal of unity into a meal of disunity? We have to remember, remember that this meal is fundamentally about God 
in Christ serving us. And if God is willing to serve us, can we not serve our neighbor? Furthermore, we have to be on guard, on guard from turning this holy meal into a common meal. This is a holy meal that unites a people around a holy identity. Let us pray.